Hello, thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, everyone, and welcome. I want to introduce the speaker, um, Aza Bouzied's research work for, focuses on designing intuitive data querying tools. Today's technologies are helping people collect and produce data at phenomenal rates. Despite the abundance of data, it remains largely, largely inaccessible due to the skill required to explore, query, and analyze it in a non-trivial fashion. While many users know exactly what they're looking for, they have trouble expressing sophisticated queries in interfaces that require knowledge of a programming language or a query language. AZA designs novel interfaces, such as example-driven query tools that simplify data querying and analysis. Her research work combines techniques from various research fields, such as a UI design, which I don't know what it means, um, machine learning, and databases. I think we're going to learn a lot about all of these things today. Aza Buziad received her doctoral degree from Yale in 2013, and she spent a year as a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley. She is also one of the co-founders of HADAP, the big data analytics platform. So it's a pleasure to leave you with Aza today. Uh, thank you, Dean Marta, for that beautiful introduction. Um, let me sort of talk a little bit about how I see myself as a researcher. Um, and the reason I'm doing it is because I think it will color um, how you see the talk, how you perceive the talk, and it'll help you sort of better understand um, what are my mental models when I think about research problems. So I wear two hats. I wear two research hats. I'm a database systems researcher. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, uh, think about Oracle, IBM. They made a ton of money basically selling you database systems. These are the, the back ends of any digital application out there. Um, that's where we store your data, manage your data, um, and also help you sort of do transactions efficiently. And so when you talk to a database systems researcher, their primary concern is always scalability. Uh, if I'm going to add more data, I want to be able to query it, access it, search it, run some sort of complicated analysis over it um, faster the more computational resources I add. So that's the mindset of a database systems researcher. Their primary concern tends to be scalability. The other hat that I wear is that of a human-computer interaction researcher. Um, and what those folks think about often is usability. Um, so when Marta said she doesn't know what UI stands for, it means for user interface, right? It's the interface of our systems for users like you folk. Um, and, and sort of how do we make our tools more accessible and more usable to you so you could be more productive uh, or, or better at doing the things that are important. All right. So why did I start thinking about database systems and HCI? Why did I get you know, drawn into that research space. Uh, so when I was an undergraduate student, 
um, I was about to join a course called Numerical Methods, and the book, um, and it's written by Turing Award winner Richard Hamming, you know, the very first sort of page in the book says, the purpose of computing is insight, not numbers. Long story short, I never joined the class, um, but that quote stuck in my head. And, you know, it motivated my research direction and I kept thinking about it, you know, well, the purpose of computing is insight, not numbers. Well, what is the purpose of insight? And I think ultimately it's to make decisions, right? We, we collect our data, we analyze our data to gain insight, but what is the purpose of that insight? Well, it's to take some important decisions based on the data that we have. And of course, by syllogism, you know, if the purpose of insight is to make decisions, then the purpose of computing is to make decisions. Now, hopefully a few years from now, I'm gonna write a book with that as the main line. Uh, if not, feel free to quote me. As I was aid, the purpose of computing is to make decisions. All right, so this is a talk in three parts. The first part, I'll sort of try to get you thinking about me, about what do I mean exactly when I say the words decision-making, and more importantly, what do I mean by computational decision-making? And then the second part really is a tour of different research projects in that space that my lab sort of took on. And really, when, when, when thinking about the space, think of a very large room that's filled with problems, um, decision-making problems, and we're looking at it through a very tiny peephole. Um, and, and that's really the, the light in terms of you know, the types of research problems that I'm gonna look at in that massive space of different decision-making problems. Um, and then I'll conclude with sort of the limitations, right? So, you know, if I, if I get you up on this high where I show you, you know, different success stories from my research, the, the end really is to bring some sanity into all of this and say, hey, hold on, this is, you know, we're not going to have sort of an embodied um, data type person. If you, are there any Trekkies in the room, Star Trek folks? Yeah, so remember how data would like, you know, analyze the data I don't know how or where he's getting that stream of input, but would say, you know, the, the probability that you destroy the other warship is, I don't know, 10% or something like that. We're never gonna get to that point where we have an embodied sort of, we might, uh, and I guess this is where I'm gonna get into some trouble. But my, my prediction is that, you know, that we're very far away from that point where we have sort of an embodied agent uh, telling us, you know, what are the decisions we should take and why in pseudo, in, in context uh, of, the, of events as they're happening. All right, so let me get you started, um, warm you up by sort of helping you think like I do about decision making. Um, initially, I was gonna talk about how to make good decisions and then I realized I'm no expert. Um, and through this talk, you will realize, you know, why I'm not that good at making decisions either. All right. So I want you all to imagine yourselves as researchers observing people making decisions. Here we're at, a, at an airport, there's people arriving at a rental car agency and they're making decisions about what insurance they should get. All right. So I'll present you with a happy couple. Here we have Tina and Hugh. They walk up to the car rental agency and the agent sort of presents them you know, with, with different insurance options, right? Which insurance do you want? Um, so Hugh takes the lead on this one. 
Now, it takes him 10 minutes to process this pile of legalists, all these documents, lots of terms, quite complicated, but really boils down to this. Yu has two options, two actions he can take. He can either take the third-party insurance, right, pay 100 dirhams a day for it, and if there's an accident, pay up to 10,000 dirhams in, in legal uh, or in damages and so on. Or take full, full insurance, you know, 300 dirhams a day, um, and pay nothing in the case of an accident, all right? So after he sort of enlists or enumerates the possible actions that he can take, he goes off thinking. Now he's a very sort of uh, serious person. He likes to think things true. And he starts thinking about, well, what is the likelihood that I get into an accident? You know, he looks at all the data at hand, accidents in the last five years. What are the road conditions that I'll be driving in? What is the weather forecast? Is it going to rain? Is there fog? Um, how familiar am I with the city that I'm renting the car in? It takes him about 20 minutes to, to sort of figure all of that and then sort of come up with this evaluation that the likelihood of, of getting into an accident is low. And so he's only going to pay 700 dirhams for the total seven-day rental, assuming you know, that he's not going to get into an accident. Now, this is a 30-minute long process, right? What do you think is happening to Tina? She's rolling her eyes, right? This is too much for her. Eh. And, you know, she's, she's kind of getting really exhausted by this, her and everybody else in the, in the line. Um, but aside from this decision and whether it was good or bad, we can sort of look at it at a high level and think about the strategy that Hugh took, right? The first thing he did was figure out what were the actions available, right? What were the set of decisions that he can make? Then he made predictions about how those decisions are going to play out uh, in the future, and then made assessments or evaluations um, as to what those decisions, um, given the predictions, given the environment that they're going to operate in, are going to lead up to. And of course, he's doing all of this with the primary goal of saving money. right? Um, now, what if we change it up a little bit, right? What if you know, we were in an alternate universe and it was Tina that took the lead on this, right? Um, now, it's going to take her less than a minute to figure out the different actions. Um, this, has, you know, this is just pure observation, nothing to do with you know, how men and women think. Um, and it's going to take her quite a little bit of time to make her predictions, less than a second. And the reason being, not that she's not very thorough, uh, but that she knows that her husband is going to drive the car, right? And, and that is enough. That's enough to sort of cut out all the other possibilities. An accident is going to happen, right? Might is very likely to happen. And so her evaluations end up being different. Now, of course, what's the impact on you? Eye rolls all around, right? So we can look at this again and abstract out what's happening. In decision-making, as a strategy, we typically think about the actions available to us. We think about the predictions and how these actions are going to play out in the world, uh, and then try and evaluate them all with the goal of optimizing towards some goal. I think it's pointless to think about whether the decision was good or bad. right? Um, part of the reason is, when you do this, uh, you know, you're almost always hedging for the worst-case scenario. Right? The only time this couple is going to be happy with the decision is if the worst happened, which was that an accident took place. Now, they're not going to be happy about 
the accident, but they're going to be happy that they took the great decision of sort of taking on full insurance. Now, every other combination of what happens and what decision they made is, is not going to be sort of, it's going to be hard to assess whether it was a good decision or not. Uh, and so my point in this is that when you're making decisions, especially when you're thinking about a computational agent making decisions, in an uncertain world, right, where you don't know for sure whether something is going to happen or not. And here the case is, is, is the accident. Is the accident going to happen or not? Um, there's, there's no point thinking about good or bad, right? Hindsight is always going to be 2020. But once you've taken a decision, really what you should be thinking about is, what is my next decision? Um, and for our point of view, really, we're not interested necessarily in thinking about you know, the moral aspects or the, the good aspects or how to assess decisions. Rather, we're interested in the strategy. And can we take the strategy, if we think it's reasonable, um, and make it computational? All right. So I am going to posit that this is a good strategy, that it, that it has computing potential, predicated on the fact that we can first identify our goals and that we can specify very clearly what our goals are. Right? So we cannot leave sort of the goal setting up to the machine or the computer. We have to sort of specify it clearly. You know, your goal is to minimize costs. Your goal is to maximize profits, so on. So we start by identifying goals. And once we do that, we can sort of think about these three components. And I think these three components are essential to any computational decision-making strategy. So you're going to have to enumerate your actions and predictions. And when we think about this idea of sort of thinking about your action space, constructing it, sometimes you can't even enumerate all the possible actions available to you, but you could at least define the space of them. Um, and how they influence the future, the predictions part, the problem of decision-making really boils down to searching. And all of you know that computer scientists are really good at searching. This is our bread and butter, right? There's Google, and there's every other sort of thing that really boils down to search. So if I could define my decision-making strategy in terms of a search problem, then it's a huge win because there's lots of algorithms, there's decades of work, um, on searching and planning that I could just leverage. Now, the other aspect of it now is that if I could evaluate my decisions on what they actually impacted in, in either a model or the real world, um, then I could use that to sort of update my predictions, but also update the space of possible actions. And that part is learning. And again, learning is decades old in computer science. This idea of using observations to update models, of using observations to update predictions, bread and butter. So this really is the computational landscape when it comes to decision making. It boils down to a search, uh, a search algorithm or a planning algorithm, provided I could define these components, provided I could specify what my action space is, and how that action uh, is going to play out into the future. I could predict its impact into the future. Now, different people will use different terms. Uh, in our lab, and again, this is because we're wearing a database systems hat, 
we call this whole gamut of, of things prescriptive analytics. And the reason we call it that is to sort of distinguish it from descriptive analytics, sort of just describing your data with dashboards, <laughs> aggregations, summaries. Uh, predictive analytics, where you build forecast models or you try to predict the future. And prescriptive is sort of that one step ahead where you say, okay, I'm gonna prescribe what you should do given the data that I have. So as a database systems person, we call this thing, this whole gamut of things, prescriptive analytics. Different people, like I said, will use different terms. Uh, the context is very important. If my goal is to seek funding with this, um, then I'll add a few more terms here and there. I'll call this deep learning and artificial intelligence, and that's how I'll get money. All right. But now that I've defined the landscape for you and sort of introduced some of the main terms, um, I want to sort of let you know that there are challenges that make this a very rich field. And why I'm doing this is because ultimately my goal from this talk is to teach you something about, you know, how can we get computers to make decisions, um, but also to inspire you and to inspire you by showing, okay, there are really nice, rich uh, challenges here. And sometimes with simple solutions, creative solutions, you could, you could make big wins. Um, so what are some of these challenges in the landscape? Well, one of them is just figuring out what the goal is. Uh, like I said, computers, unlike humans, need goals. They need that, that, that objective that they need to optimize for. Um, but it's not that easy to define a goal sometimes, right? Just reflect back on, on Tina and Hugh. One of the goals could be pen, penny pinching, right? I want to save as much money as I can. Um, another goal could be I want to make my wife happy, right? in which case I go with whatever she goes, right? So your objectives can change, your goals can change, and that will change sort of how these decisions play out. But the problem is not necessarily that there are different goals. The problem is how do you specify what the goal is? How do you set the goal? Um, when we think about the action space, there are many possible actions. Um, and you know, if, if we're thinking about this as a search problem, and I'm gonna illustrate this with sort of, as soon as I get into our, our research, um, if I have to enumerate every possible action, I could be dealing with billions, astronomical numbers of different actions that I wanna sort of simulate how they play out into the future, um, and that quickly becomes intractable. So then I need to come up with solutions to cut that space, right? To sort of only focus on actions that are actually important. Um, and actions build on actions. So this is an important aspect of decision making is that not all of it is one shot, right? We don't make a decision and then that's it. Um, sometimes you make an, a decision and that has consequences that's then gonna affect your next decision and then you wanna optimize that sequence of actions rather than one at a time. Um, the key idea that we're gonna be looking at in today's talk is uncertainty and sort of saying that, you know, when everything is predetermined, it, it, it gets kind of easy. Really, it's uncertainty that makes things complicated. But there's even a more, there's a more fundamental question to uncertainty, which is how do you even model it? Right? How do you describe how uncertain your system is? And then finally, sort of, you know, how do you, how do you tie in everything 
and estimate the rewards of your functions of, of, of your actions, um, if if you can't actually play out things in real life, right? It would be great if I have a search strategy where I could enact different things and then observe what the results are, right? But what if I don't have that? What if the, the I cannot play things into the future and then you know go back in time and choose the best one, right? So then, how do you estimate rewards without access to that ability to enact your actions in in a real life setting? Um, so everything in orange on the slides, sort of the goal, these different challenges that I laid out, I'm actually going to sort of address different parts of them in the next part of my talk where we talk about our, 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 our research projects. Um, the things that I'm leaving out for the last part of this talk um, are sort of how do we take what I've just described, abstract it and generalize it to address even bigger and even more complex problems and in doing so, sort of illustrate why this is an inherently hard problem, why, why we're going to hit some limits. And it'll be difficult to sort of go past them. All right, everybody still with me? Great. OK, so let's look at some research stories. Um, now, I'm a middle-aged woman, right? I've, I've reached a point in my life where um, I finally paid off my debts, and I have, and I have some savings. So of course, the first thing that you get is recommendations from Google and YouTube, you know, things like, you can be a millionaire teacher, right? So I start looking into this, and I'm like, hmm, there's, there's some decision making that I could take here. What if I start investing my money? You know, what if I buy stocks? So I'm going to introduce one of my research projects through this lens, right? This, this problem of, of buying stocks and selecting um, the right stocks to buy. So I'll make it more concrete. Suppose I have a database here of all the different stocks that I can buy and their current price, so Apple, IBM stocks, you know, and, and, and sort of uh, and a prediction in terms of how much money I'm going to make if I sell that stock in a year. Right, so I'm trying to invest over a one-year timeline. And you know, the, the goal then is basically to sort of maximize my profit. So let's bring back that decision-making strategy. And remember these three things, actions, predictions, evaluations, because they're going to keep coming up. So what's my goal? Well, maximize profit, right? What are my actions? Well, it is the choices of the stocks that I'm going to buy and how much of each, right? But there's that, and then there's the definition of the space of possible actions, right? And that has to be constrained somehow. And it's constrained by things like my budget. And there's only a small amount of dollars in the bank account, and you're going to use those to buy stocks, so you know, better stay under your budget. So that, that's sort of the space of actions that we have. The predictions, and that's sort of that gain column, how much do I expect to make in a year? Um, and, and collectively, we call this thing a constrained optimization problem. And of course, my evaluations are going to be, you know, how much of the stock that I'm going to buy multiplied by the gain that I expect to get once I sell that stock in a year. Okay, so that's it. That's my, my you know, the different, you know, the, the stock portfolio optimization problem. Um, what I'm going to show you, though, is that this is, this is a, the, the challenge in trying to sort of solve this problem is that there are way too many actions. 
right? How many actions am I talking about here? Well, if I'm trading in the New York Stock Exchange, it has about 2,400 different stocks, right? And that's a tiny database. You talk to any database person and they'll be like, oh my goodness, that's, that's tiny, right? But if, I, if I'm thinking about the actions here as whether I buy a single stock or not, right, then, you know, I basically have 10 to, you know, a, a number that's 723 digits long, right? For any astrophysicists, you know, you've got only like, you know, some 10, 24 zeros or so in your numbers. Look at my numbers. All right, and that's tiny. Now, the good news is that if I, if I formulate my problem this way, and I'm only looking at something like the New York Stock Exchange, then I could use sort of work that, that computer scientists have done in the fields of inter integer linear programming, um, algorithms like branch and bound due to Isla Land and Alison Harcourt, you know, two phenomenal women in computer science who've, who've produced sort of what I would call still state-of-the-art uh, algorithm for solving these problems, right? So if you look under the hood in, in, in solvers, uh, those are the technologies that are used to solve these types of problems, um, that, that, that specification of a problem, a constrained optimization problem. Um, and so their solution to this, the branch and bound algorithm from the 60s, is still what's used under the hood in things like Garobi and, and Cplex. Uh, so these are commercial solvers that you could buy uh, from IBM and, and Garobi. Um, and so that's good. So wh why am I presenting this problem? Well, what if I expand my database? What if I add more stock exchanges? What if I start examining different cell periods? So not in a year, maybe 10 years, five years. Um, then what happens? Then it becomes too big that these solvers are incapable, they choke uh, once that database grows. Right? And so if I'm dealing in situations where I have millions of base things that I have to consider, so millions of sort of stocks, individual stocks that I want to consider whether to buy or not, that action space explodes even more um, and there's no way for these solvers to work. So that's where we came in. And so our first research project was how do we handle this? How do we solve these integer linear programs when we have many different tuples or many different data points over which we want to select a subset? Uh, so this is a common trick in computer science. And I'm, I'm not going to get into the details of, of what we did. Rather, I'm going to give you the, the sort of the clever or the abstract idea, leaving the details for the paper. So think of stocks as these points in space, right? It's an n-dimensional space. It could involve multiple things, like you know, what sector the stock is in, what's its current price, um, what stock exchange are we talking about? Different sort of features that describe each stock, and I'd have them in this n-dimensional space. Now, a common trick in computer science is called divide and conquer. Right? We think of ourselves as warlords. We want to divide and conquer, right? So what is divide and conquer? Well, I look at this space and I say, I could divide it up into small clusters. And these clusters are sort of tightly connected in some form, right? All the stocks within a cluster have certain, uh, have certain values for their different features. And then I could take each cluster and replace it by a representative, some sort of centroid of that cluster or average of the different points therein. 
Okay, so once I've done that, how does that help? Well, we came up with this algorithm called SketchRefine. The idea is that once I have these representatives, I could use these solvers, these ILP, integer linear programming solvers, and solve the problem only over the representatives. So not the entire clusters that they represent, just the representatives. So instead of the 10 or 15 different stocks presented in this visual diagram, instead I'm going to solve that using standard tools, standard off-the-shelf solvers like Cplex or Gorobi, over the representatives, the x's here. So instead of solving it over a problem of size 20 or so, I'm solving it over a problem of size 4. Right now you could think of this sort of, you, you could mentally scale it yourself so that now instead of solving a problem over millions, I'm going to solve it over 100 or so representatives. Okay. Once I do that, I'm going to get a solution that says, you know, pick one from that cluster represented by that representative. I mean, it's telling me, you know, if, if, if these representatives were actual stocks, then buy one of this, buy three of that other x, buy two of that other x, right? But because these are not real stocks and representatives, what I'm going to do next is go through a series of refined processes where I try to replace you know, this representative by an actual one real stock from that cluster that it represents. Okay? So it's going to go ahead in, those, in a series of sort of um, uh, ILP or integer linear programming problems where at each step I'm replacing a cluster by its representatives, uh, sorry, by its members and solving the problem. And if I set everything right, then I'm going to make sure that each cluster is not too big, probably in the order of thousands of different stocks, so that every time I'm solving an integer linear program, but it's still small enough and manageable. And so I do that for the next cluster after I replaced the first cluster with the true, with a true stock and so on until I'm done. And then at the end, these are the, the different sort of stocks that I should buy. Um, does this work? It does. In fact, it gives me a very good approximation of what the optimal solution would be had I used a solver on the full problem. What's nice to point out here is that this is a simple idea. This is just divide and conquer. Um, now, we've published this work. It's been featured in the communications of the ACM uh, as a research highlight. And we've proved that the, the, the approximation bounds are tight, so we could get a very, a very close to optimal solution if we used sketch, and ref, sketch Refine. But it's not just the only thing that we did. We packaged this with a whole database system, with a whole new language, where you can specify easily these types of problems. Right? So it does go beyond stocks. Uh, and, and in fact, our, our intention was not necessarily to do stock portfolio optimization. Rather, our intention was to solve any decision-making problems that had a similar structure, where you had a set of things, and the decision-making aspect was choosing a subset of them. Now, I could read minds, so I know what you all are thinking at this point, right? Which is, am I making lots of money? Have I used this to buy my own stocks? <laughs> and no. And the reason no is because I kind of skimmed over the, the really important thing, right? Which is, where am I getting my predictions from? 
right? How do I know what the gain is going to be in a year? Um, so where do these predictions come from? Um, I don't know, talk to hedge fund managers. They're going to tell you we use the best models in the world. We can predict, you know, to infinity and beyond how we you know what the what the stock prices are going to be. You talk to your banker, they have their own set of models. Talk to the economists. They have very interesting models. Um, so each one of those will give you their own sort of view as to what the price is going to be at some point in the future of a given stock. Um, and if you take look at the aggregate or if you look at what actually these models produce, they're not producing a definitive number, right? They're not telling you actually that in a year, you know, you're going to make $10 if you sell uh, the Apple stock. Instead, they're giving you a probability distribution, something that looks like this. And, you know, depending on, on how, um, how certain or uncertain the model is of, of the, the price of the stock in the future, you're going to get different probability distributions, right? So if it's not very certain, you'd get, you know, big variance, uh, the, the, the gain would not be concentrated around some specific number, right? So now that I, that I know this, I know that I could think of sort of the future of stock prices as some sort of distribution now I need to reformulate my problem a little bit, right? I need to handle this uncertainty. The fact that the gain for Apple could be anywhere from minus 5 to 15 and a little bit on the edges beyond that. Um, the concentration of the probability is around 5, so that's the higher likelihood of things. That's the expected uh, gain that I'm going to get, but it is a distribution. So how is that going to change things for me? So now I'm no longer going to think about maximizing profit. I'm going to think about maximizing expected profit. Right? What do I expect uh, over these probabilistic random variables? Right? And I'm going to subject this to additional constraints. Now they're no longer deterministic. It's no longer you know, um, that, I should, you know, that I should not make a loss of more than $10, it's the probability that I lose $10 should be less than 5%. So now my constraints change from very specific things to probabilistic ones. Okay, now that has, you know, I, I could see that I've upped the mats in this room. Um, this is a bit more complicated than before. How do I solve these problems? Well, it comes down to how do I actually think about uncertainty, right? I said that, you know, we could think of these gains as sort of probability distributions in the future. Um, how, do, how do I change that into something tractable, something that I could sort of algorithmically play around with? So this is the idea. Remember how I presented you with alternate universes, one where Hugh went first and then another one where Tina went first? Now I'm going to do the same thing with stocks. I'm going to simulate multiple possible future worlds. The way I'm going to do them is that I'm going to sample from this distribution. Right? What that basically means is it's like rolling a die and picking a number from that distribution, but then the, the chances that I get a certain number are determined by the, the probability distribution. So if I sample sort of multiple Apple future stocks, Right? I'm going to get a histogram where the frequency of the different gains kind of matches that curve. Okay? So I'm going to generate multiple possible worlds, multiple possible scenarios, 
for the different stock prices in the future. Now, once I do that, right, um, I have these multiple scenarios, I could solve over them the very same problem that I specified earlier, but now it's over a bigger database, has multiple possible worlds. And what I'm going to say is basically the same thing, maximize expected profit, uh, subject to some constraints. But the way I'm going to check the constraints is by looking at these hundreds of scenarios, millions of scenarios that I generated, and say, OK, make sure that you know, if I generate 100 possible future worlds, and my goal is that I don't lose $10 or more in 5% in five, 5 of them, and if I generated 100 scenarios, I could basically check that only five of them have a loss greater than 10. And so I've changed what is a probabilistic constraint, which is kind of difficult to think about and evaluate, into something that I can mechanically check for, right? that I could algorithmically check for. OK, so using that idea, am I done? No. And the reason I'm not done is this. I generate random scenarios, let's say hundreds of them, and um, I'm going to solve over them. But every time I, I check, I validate. So one of the things I'll have to do is to only sort of look at a handful of future scenarios when I'm trying to solve these problems. Why? Because if I generate millions and millions of scenarios, the problem becomes intractable. I cannot actually solve it even with all the optimizations that I talked about before, like sketch refine. So I'm going to generate 100 or so, or in the order of thousands, um, scenarios over which I'm going to solve the problem. And then, to be extra sure that I gave you the right thing, once that gives me a solution, I'm going to validate that solution on even more samples, on even more scenarios. So you know, if I solve over hundreds, I simulate millions, and then I validate over millions. Why am I doing that extra check? Just to be sure. Right? There's, there's lots of, you know, the, these probability distributions are complex. Uh, some of them are even correlated. Um, and so if I'm just testing or if I'm just evaluating, uh, sorry, solving over a handful, it's very likely that I will fail when I validate. But that's exactly the problem. right? I solve on 100 of them, I validate on millions, and I keep failing. And what I mean by failing here is that when I check, I check and I find that more than 5% of the, the, the scenarios of the worlds that I generated in the millions or so of them don't satisfy the constraint that I lost less than $10. And this is a known problem. It's, known the it's called the optimizer's curse. And the reason this keeps happening is because when I try to solve the problem in a very small sample of scenarios, I'm basically creating an easy problem. It's too easy. And so it picks different solutions from me, but when these solutions are actually validated, they fail. OK, so here I'm going to use another sort of computer science trick. It's a bag of tricks. Uh, and this is a solution that we call summary search. The idea is summarization. Right? I, I look at these multiple handful random scenarios, and rather than trying to naively solve over them, I sort of construct a conservative or a worst case summary of these random scenarios. Not that I have that worst case, 
I try to find a good, a good sort of package of stocks over that worst case, uh, but that's a harder problem. Right? Now I've made the space of solutions that I could get so small. I've shrunk that space because now I'm looking at worst cases across all the different stocks that I have. And so this problem becomes computationally harder to solve than that problem. But that's a good thing. Why? Because when it's time to validate it, I pass. Right? So I've constructed a harder problem than what the original one was. I validate, and it's feasible. If some of this is going above your head, it's OK. Um, what, I, what I hope you'd get out of this is two things. Right? One, that in the first solution, I used divide and conquer, and it worked. Here I used summarization and a trick of sort of solving on a smaller set of things, but validating on a much larger. And I get good solutions. And, and this was work that was published. We used it to demo sort of um, stock portfolio optimization. And we won an award on that work. Um, and you know, using that simple idea of sort of uh, summarizing and then and, and sort of multiple possible worlds kind of beats state-of-the-art in stochastic integer linear programming techniques. Um, okay, so again, you're asking yourselves, am I a millionaire, right? But like I said, I'm not an expert in making good decisions, right? If you track when I buy things and when I sell things, you'd, you'd notice the, the, what's happening here, right? So. Why? Well, really it comes down to this, right? I bought stocks, the pandemic happened, I lost. Um, and I panicked quite easily, so I sold, right? I bought stocks, some war happened, and then again I sold, lost money, right? Um, what is happening here is, is Dick Cheney's you know, problem, right? The problem of unknown unknowns. When I think about uncertainty and how I model it, it's known unknowns. Right? I can describe the space of things that are going to happen. Right? I could describe the distribution of gains that I'm going to get. And so really, it's a known unknown. But all these things are unknown unknowns. All right. So how's, how's, you know, how, how do I handle this problem? I mean, part of my answer is, I don't know. Uh, I don't think there's an easy way to sort of model or think about unknown unknowns because they're unknown, right? But what if we have agents that can constantly observe the environment that they're operating in, right? They could look at sort of the actions that, that we've taken, what the, what the effect is on the current state, compute the rewards to make the next action, right? So think of an auto trader. Right, that is observing the prices of stocks and so on and, and making decisions on a daily basis. There are a number of, of, of terms that people use to describe this. We call it sequential decision making. Uh, but you know, it goes by many names, Markov decision processes, reinforcement learning. Right? Um, and the idea is that you have these trajectories of action states and rewards. And sometimes these are you know, agents that are situated in the environment, so they can actually observe the rewards as they're truly occurring. And sometimes they're operating over models, so that they're not really operating in a real environment, but they're constructing these decisions in a simulated sort of model. And the reason you would want to do that is 
because you want to come out with a plan ahead of time and, and sort of say, this is the plan, this is the set of actions that you want to take. All right. So you could model you know, buying stocks as some sort of auto trader that does this. You know, at every point, you have actions that you could take. You, know, you could buy some stocks. You could sell some stocks. There's a state that's affected by these actions. The cash that you have at hand, for example, it could grow or shrink. Um, how much of each of the stocks you own, and what your gain is, or sort of your immediate re reward po post that action. Um, but when the pandemic happened, I sort of decided that it's time for me to stop, about, stop thinking about wealth accumulation. There are more important things in the world, survival. Um, so that's when I switched gears, and I started thinking about epidemic planning, right? And the reason why I thought about epidemic planning is that it has that pattern to it, right? And it has the pattern to it that we talked about before, actions, predictions, evaluations, right? Here we have actions or interventions that we can think about, wearing masks, closing schools. Um, we have states that we want to think about, how many people are infected, how many people have recovered, um, and a cost, a cost in terms of the interventions that we've applied but also a cost in terms of disease cost, right? How many sick people do we have? So that's when I started thinking, okay, well, let me think about sequential decision-making in the context of epidemic planning. And put very simply, it's really, I wanna come up with a schedule, a schedule of interventions. You could describe what these interventions are to reduce disease spread and disease burden. And burden defined here sort of in terms of sick or infected individuals, in terms of hospitalizations, in terms of economic cost. Um, and so we started talking to different stakeholders. We talked to consultants, we talked to, to epidemiologists, public health officials, um, to figure out you know, how do they go about making these sequence of decisions, these policies that affect millions of lives. Um, and the conclusion that I came to after sort of doing this process, and it went on for months, was um, so far I've been looking at decision-making as a scalability problem, the database systems hat. But this, this is a human problem. This is an HCI problem. This is a human computation problem. And so I need to put the other hat on. So let me tell you why. Well, first, it's not that easy to figure out what the goals are. You talk to different stakeholders, they have different goals. An economist might be concerned about the economy, might be concerned about the costs of these things. A public health official might be concerned about lives. Right? Sometimes they do the, their goals align, but sometimes they're, they're at odds. There's an aspect there of maintaining the general peace, making sure that people are happy with these, these interventions that are being implemented. And sometimes these things are at odds. So sometimes they align, sometimes they're at odds. The other sort of thing that I realized is that you could think about the actions and sort of what is computationally specifiable, what can you describe to a system, but then there's an aspect of what is actually socially implementable, right? So I can't think of an action, you know, if I think about sort of a computationally describable action and it's like wear masks, what if it comes back and tells me wear half a mask? Well, that doesn't make sense, but it could come out as an output, right? So, of course, I'm giving here a, a silly example, but you could think about how this will play out in sort of real life. 
when thinking about the plans or the actions that you want to sort of specify and, and whether or not they're socially implementable or not. And then the last thing about this is uh, really comes to predictions, right? And how do I figure out what the effect of my action is going to be in terms of disease spread? Now, we're lucky in the sense that in epidemiology, there are many robust disease models that describe how disease is spread. The problem, though, is that these models are only robust if the parameters that describe how they operate, how they can simulate disease spread, are accurate. But where do you get the data from if the disease is still emerging? Right? How do I know what exactly is going to be my infection rate or what exactly is going to be my recovery rate if the disease is, 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 is emerging? Right? And we've seen this play out in the initial years of, of COVID right? where, where people didn't know what the fatality rate was. You'd get different numbers from different places. And of course, you want to come back and say, well, how am I going to evaluate my rewards um, when, you know, when, I, when I'm trying to plan this, you know, plan an epidemic intervention, um, but I can't actually play it out and see what's going to happen to figure out exactly what the rewards are, right? So I need to think about the model, my predictions, the action space, and do all of that in a somewhat simulated environment. So, what we figured out was this is primarily a human-computer interaction problem. I needed to get these different stakeholders to work collaboratively to tell us what their goals are so that we can actually codify it somehow um, to help sort of specify the, these actions in a way that makes sense, not just to them, but to the computer, right? Um, so what does it mean when I say wear masks, right? An epidemiologist might say wear masks, but how, what, how, how does that transform computationally into something? And really, it's going to you know, be, be codified as something that's going to impact your disease model in some shape or form to reduce, for example, infection rate. All right, so what was the, the outcome of that? Well, for about a year, we worked with these different people, and we built a tool. And that tool, you can go and, and, and sort of go to this website. I don't have the time to actually play a video of it working. But go there and, and look at some of the videos that we have of this tool. And if you're an organization or an entity that wants to use this tool, reach out to us. Uh, we can not only sort of give it to you, but we could also run tutorials and, um, and demos to sort of help you get started on it. But the main ideas behind this tool were we had to look at interventions, sort of the things that you know, epidemiologists or public health officials talk about and transform them into something programmable. And we came up with our own domain-specific language to help people talk about, to help people describe what the effects and the costs are of these different interventions. We created a system where we can surface the parameters very easily of the different models. And it's not just disease, it's also things like mobility patterns in, in, in a city that Need, that their parameters need to be surfaced. The idea behind that is that you could change or you could explore what the effect is of changing the different parameters on, on, on the end result or the end outcome. And the main idea was the separation of concerns. Different people have, have different perspectives on a, on a collaborative decision-making problem, right? So 
an urban planner will give you a very good uh, mobility pattern, sort of model describing how people move in the city, uh, how people come in and out through airports or ports, but they, they're not going to be good at sort of telling you what the cost of a certain intervention is. Right? That might be a better job for an economist. Um, same thing for sort of describing the disease model or describing the interventions. And what was surprising in all of this was talking to these stakeholders, ultimately what they wanted was they themselves to be able to tweak things and see what the effects were. They weren't necessarily that interested in us giving them an automated agent that told them, this is what the intervention plan is, this is the plan that's going to minimize, um, or, or, or this is the most cost-effective plan. Right? This is the schedule of things that you should do. Instead, what they were more interested with was, you know, we know that these are generally good policies. We just want to implement different variations of them and see what the effects are. So that was sort of eye-opening to me, that decision-making, and, and when we think about computational decision-making, sometimes it's a lot more about the support than the ability to automatically generate a policy or a plan. But we still had to answer that question, right? Can we computationally construct epidemic intervention plans, given that we've laid out the whole foundation for everything, right? Now we have a tool where you can programmatically define what the actions are or what the interventions are, and you can modify their behavior very easily. You have a simulator that can simulate the effects of different interventions, whether you use them or not, and to what degrees they're implemented. So we had the foundation, right? And so we had to answer that question, right? Can we computationally construct uh, epidemic interventional plans? And of course, if we go with sort of brute force strategies, that space is, is, is more than, it's, it's intractable, right? It's way more than the stocks. Because now I'm not thinking about a single action, I'm rather thinking about a sequence of them, and that sequence is interspersed with states and rewards that may be influenced by the action, but may also be influenced by external factors. And so search or vanilla search strategies are not going to work. And so instead, you know, we had to sort of think about different solutions. And one thing that we used was deep reinforcement learning. And really, the idea there is simple. Right? Rather than thinking of a whole trajectory and then evaluating its value, right? Was, is, this, you know, is this sequence of actions good or bad, and, and trying to enumerate all of these different trajectories, or constructing millions and millions of them, instead, we want to sort of learn local things. I want to learn for um, a specific state what the best action should be. Right? And when you think about that, that's a local problem, right? Because across these millions of trajectories, I'm going to get many states that repeat and many actions that follow. And I could see what the effect of these actions are on the next state, but also all the way up to the end to sort of assess cumulatively what the value is of that specific sort of state action. So now I've transformed the problem from a big global one to a small local one. And the idea is that I could sort of learn a policy. And a policy is just a function that says, given a certain state, tell me what the action is. And for those of you that find the words deep learning or neural networks intimidating, it's not. It's just a function. It's a function approximator. 
right? It's me trying to say, I'm gonna estimate what something is using this, this neural network thing, but at the end of the day, it's, think of it as a mathematical function. It's not particularly linear, it's not particularly trivial, it's a bit complex, but at the end of the day, it approximates a function that tells me, you know, for a specific state, what the action should be. And I could do something a bit more to that, right, which is for a specific state or action, tell me what I expect my final value to be. And so these deep reinforcement learning models are the ones that we looked at particularly at were these actor critic models where we tried to learn two things at the same time and the two things work in tandem to sort of uh, help each other sort of figure out good, good policies, right? So the actor figures out a policy or from a state figure out the action and the critic figures out the value or sort of not just the reward of immediately applying the action but the, the reward of applying that action all the way up until your, your time horizon or, or the end of time. Okay, so can we construct? So we, we went ahead, we did this, we ran several, we created a whole benchmark of different sort of disease models, different intervention sets, and we applied this. And then we, we use different types of algorithms, uh, like I said, different RL algorithms, and saw what the results are. So this is the result of one. It was trained on a COVID-like disease model, uh, not exactly COVID, but quite similar in that it had hospitalizations, two-dose uh, vaccine regimens, um, on, on a large enough population of two million or so people, and we examined sort of interventions like wearing masks, vaccinating the population, closing work, closing school, and it came out with something like that. And um, it converged. So basically after sort of uh, learning for over millions of, of, of trajectories, right, over a large amount of time, three hours here, it couldn't produce anything better than this. It settled on this and it said sort of, this is, this is roughly what the plan is gonna look like. And what the plan is, you know, you, you have high mass compliance, a high rate of vaccination for as long enough a time, and then, you know, that drops when the, the, the population is mostly vaccinated, uh, and then after, and then you could sort of drop mask mandates soon after, but these expensive sort of closed work, closed schools, maybe not so good. Again, I wanna point out that this is not over COVID, it's not over the UAE, these are just toy disease models, but they're a bit more than toy, that they're, they're somewhat similar to what a real thing would look like. Um, but the main takeaway from this is not necessarily what the specific plans are. The main takeaway to me is this is implementable, right? I could show this to a stakeholder and they could, they could get what the general guideline is, what the structure of this plan is. And that's a good thing because we're not necessarily confident when we use these algorithms to generate plans for us, whether they're gonna be good or bad. Case in point, we tried a different algorithm, also state of the art, also one that many people say beats the one that we used, so proximal policy optimization, soft actor critic was the other one that we used, trained for even longer amounts of time, didn't quite converge, and gave us something like this, right? Well, what does this mean? What does it mean to impose masks, then drop masks, then impose them again, and then keep them for, for a while. What does it mean to have fluctuations in vaccinations, right? 
this is not a plan that I could describe to a policymaker, or this is not a plan that a policymaker would look at and gain something valuable off. So the big question is what is growing on here? And a part of it is that there's brittleness to these things. Um, and, and that brittleness is not something that you can necessarily escape. Right, so this brings me to sort of the last part of the talk, which is why decision-making is hard in general. Right. Um, so remember the landscape. Again, actions, predictions, evaluations. Part of the brittleness is this idea that it's difficult to codify domain expertise in a way that makes sense or a way that always works. Um, Richard Sutton, sort of one of the, the founders of reinforcement learning, wrote this blog post quite recently where he said, you know, all our efforts to get artificial intelligence, to get learning to sort of work with us are inherently brittle if we try to codify too much domain expertise into them. Instead, what we should do is try and make things as abstract as possible so that these algorithms discover for themselves the basic principles and then from the basic principles sort of build bigger things. Now that's all great and it makes sense when you're building reinforcement learning things for things like chess, right, or things like Go. It's easy to say, you, you know, it's easy to, to sort of give it the basic steps and have it discover things. But what does it mean when I'm trying to use reinforcement learning for something more practical, like coming up with an epidemic plan? Right? Um, and, and here, we, uh, what, I, what I'd say is that the abstractions are not quite right. Now, there might be research that tries and figures out ways for us to specify these things to computers in a more natural way. But once that leap occurs, I think we're all kind of fiddling around in that same space where we're going to be producing solutions that are somewhat brittle. Brittle in the sense that they work sometimes, they don't work sometimes, and they need a lot of engineering to get them to work just right. Um, and then there's this other problem, which I didn't really address. Right? I said, well, sure, you could have an agent observing the environment, right? and, and as things change in the environment, it could change its behavior. But the problem with unknown unknowns is much bigger than that. And, and part of it is that you, you construct these agents to operate based on uncertain behaviors that they have trained to address. But an unknown unknown sort of gives you a behavior that's completely out of expectation. So the policies that your agents have learned, these functions that sort of tell you what's, what action I should take given a certain state, are just not, have not learned to deal with this, have not seen this before, so they're inherently going to fail. Right? The other issue that I want to bring up is, you know, when talking about predictions and building decision maker, computational decision making tools for things in the wild, you better know what is it that you're trying to predict and if it is predictable. There's many, you know, there's a, a, a Princeton professor, Arvind Narayan, who's writing this book called AI Snake Oil. And he talks about all the different things that people say they can predict, but you can't. You can't really predict. And most of them tend to be social behaviors. Um, so there are all these companies that will tell you things I can predict, for example, um, whether somebody will do well or not in a job based on a five-minute video. 
themselves, right? Uh, I could predict things like, you know, how likable they're going to be, how agreeable they're going to be, how, whether they're a good team player or not. And, and using those sort of figure out things like their success in the job. That's inherently unpredictable, I would argue. And then the last thing that sort of comes into play when thinking about computational tools for decision making is, is really the human element, right? I could give you a really good plan, a really good set of actions presented in a terrible way and you'd never take it. And I could do the opposite. I could give you a really terrible plan but presented in a great way and the humans would take it, right? So you can't think about decision-making tools uh, or decision support tools in a void. They exist within the context of the humans that are gonna enact them. And it's important to think about it that way, right? And the other idea that I wanna bring up here, and this is a bit more philosophical, is that I, I proposed this strategy, right? And I said, this is kind of, and I posited that it's reasonable, and I had this sort of story to convince you that this is how, in a way, we make decisions. But I'm gonna say that that's actually not how we make decisions. And part of the reason is we shift our goals all the time, right? Think about an undergraduate eager student. You know, they come in, they're like, I'm gonna get straight A's. That's the goal, right? Half the semester in, oh my God, this is too much work, right? I'm gonna change the goal. Now it's gonna be about work-life balance, right? So the goals change um, quite fluidly, quite flexibly, and in turn, what the actions are, what the predictions are gonna be, and how we assess or evaluate what the actions are. So we, we shift goals all the time. And sort of central to, to getting a computer to sort of make decisions is a very clear idea of what the objective is. The goal has to be clearly specified. It needs to be something that it can optimize for. Uh, and that's difficult, or it's difficult to translate how we as humans make decisions to a computer if the computer is incapable of shifting the goals or thinking more fluidly about what the goals are. Now, this has been work that's going on in my lab for years. There's a lot of people behind it, um, and there coming from different institutes. A lot of this work has been joined between NYU Abu Dhabi and UMass Amherst, uh, but also NYU, uh, New York City. Um, these are the institutes that are supporting us, cities, which is also backed by the NYU AD Institute that invited me here today, uh, so thanks to them. And a lot of grants, uh, especially from the National Science Foundation in the US and Aspire uh, in the UAE. Um, so, the kudos goes to all these people behind these projects. That's it for my talk, and uh, I'm open to questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.